As Christians, it's highly important that we understand the work of Christ on our behalf. We understand what He's done for us, what He's accomplished for us, as well as what we have in Him, our blessings in Him, what we possess in Him as His people. It's a right understanding of His work on our behalf. It's a right understanding of what we have in Him that produces love for Him. In other words, the the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior and what He's accomplished for us and what we have in Him, as we grow in that knowledge, our love for Him grows. And and it's this love, this growing, ever-growing love as we're discovering what He's done, what we have in Him, this ever-growing love that is the fuel that propels our obedience. In other words, we want to be motivated to obey the Lord and to work for the Lord, to serve the Lord out of love for Him and nothing else. And so it's critical that we understand what He's done for us and what we have in Him that our love might increase and that that love might be the fuel that drives our obedience. And that's what I want to present to you today. I want to talk to you about that today. And it's really interesting, the book of Ephesians just... It, it really is structured in this way. In fact, all of the epistles of uh, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, are structured in this way. And, and the, in, in the book of Ephesians, in like chapters 1, 2, and 3, they deal primarily with what Christ has done for his people. More specifically, what he had done for the Ephesian believers, as well as what they and we have in him. So, so the first half of the book is entirely about what Christ has done and what we have in him. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, the remaining chapters, deal with how we should live for Christ. So, so you have the work of Christ and the blessings of Christ first, and then you have our response. That's the way that Paul structured his letters. And it wasn't him. He wasn't clever enough to come up with that. This is the way the Holy Spirit led him to do that. And it is so critical that we understand the work of Christ, the blessings we have in him, how that produces love so that we might obey him and have that love as the fuel. And you don't want to get the order wrong. Many, many people in the church, they have the order wrong. They have the idea of earning the love of Christ by working for him. None of the epistles are written that way. In fact, they condemn that because that's false religion. So it's really critical that we understand what he's done, what we have in him. That increases love that fuels our obedience. And that's what I want to talk about. And we're going to look at chapters 1 and 4 today. I'm just going to do a lot of summarizing. There's no way I could walk through this book. I preached through this book several years ago, and it took almost a year. So we're we're not going to give it a, a, a real solid treatment. In fact, this sermon right here was preached at a student camp in 2016. It was a two-part. I had to modify it and take all the student references out and all the silliness. I left a little silliness in there, because I know some of you. Uh, it's okay. You can treat us like kids. Uh, but uh, I had to modify it and, and reduce it down to a single sermon instead of uh, two parts. But in any case, I want to begin with our first section. This is who we are in Christ. We see this really clearly in Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, actually all the way one through one, all the way from 1 to 14, but I want to focus on who we are in Christ in Ephesians 1, 1 through 6 first. In this passage, this section of this awesome book, which is one of my favorite books as well as Bruce's, it identifies six things about who we are in Christ. And firstly, I think right off the gate, I mean, Paul opens with this statement, 
the first thing that we see that we are is we are saints. Verse 1a, literally, the letter opens with this, this um, oh, I, you know, this entrance. He just enters into this correspondence with them with this phenomenal statement. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And I think this was Paul's favorite title for Christians, saints. I mean, it's 39 times it appears in his epistles. This is what he, when he thought of believers in Christ, when he thought of Christians, he thought of them as saints. They are saints. We are saints. In fact, it appears more times in Ephesians than in any other of his epistles. He really wants the Ephesians to understand that they are saints. And basically, all a saint is is one who's been set apart. That's just the definition of it. Hagias is the Greek word for saint, and it just means holy. It means set apart. So when you see the word saint, title saint, appear in the New Testament, especially in Paul's epistles, think holy. Think someone who's been set apart by God for God. When God saved us through His Son, through our faith. He set us apart for His purposes. He set us apart for His glory. He made us saints. And, and some will teach you and try to say that only certain Christians are saints, especially in Roman Catholicism. They tend to think or say that only those Christians who are like super Christians, who do a lot for Christ, are deemed to be saint, saints. Uh, Mother Teresa, for instance. And uh, that's not at all how the Apostle Paul used the title in the New Testament in his epistles. Every believer is a saint. And, and there's no amount of work or good deeds that we can do to attain sainthood. So that's a, a twisting of Scripture. No offense to if you're Roman Catholic, but it's just not biblically accurate. We are all saints. If we are in Christ, we are all saints. And it's the righteousness of Christ that deems us to be so, not anything that we've done. So it's important to understand that. The Bible literally teaches that all Christians are saints. If you are in Christ by grace through faith, you are a saint. You have been designated, set apart by God. You have been deemed holy. It's important that you understand that. As saints, we have a new nature a new set of loyalties, a new agenda, the kingdom of God, right? It's no longer our agenda. And we belong, literally, as saints, we belong to a different kingdom. I'm reminded of when Jesus was questioned by Pilate, and he was questioning his, 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 you know, if he was a king or not. And he said, yeah, I am, but not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. When Jesus made that statement to Pilate, that governor who had the... He was on the precipice of executing him. When he made that statement, he was making that statement for all who are in him. We are not of this world. We are not of this kingdom. A saint doesn't belong to this world. We belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. So, so firstly, I mean, this is like our identity, right? What is your identity as a Christian? You are a saint. You are... You have been made holy by God. You have been set apart from everyone else in society with the exception of other believers because they are saints as well. Not super Christians, none of that. 
You're a saint. We are saints. He addresses the entire church at Ephesus, not just a handful of really good Christians at Ephesus, but the entire church as saints. You see where I'm going with this? If you're in Christ, you're a saint. Know that. Believe that. Know that you are holy and that you have been set apart by God, that you belong to him and to his kingdom. That's the first thing that we see here. The second thing about who we are in Christ is, and this is a phenomenal one. It's kind of mind-blowing. Number two, we are faithful. 1B, right? Verse 1B, he says to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful, and are faithful. When Paul called the believers in Ephesus faithful, he had a couple of things in mind. It first has to do with exercising faith. You know, a Christian is one who has heard the gospel of God's grace and and Jesus Christ and has exercised through the work of the Holy Spirit, has exercised faith in that gospel. So, So faithfulness here pertains to one who has exercised initial faith in the gospel. It's not talking about how they live their life. It's a reference to their belief to the moment that they believed, to the fact that they believed, which again is the work of God. But that's not the only thing Paul had in mind. He also had in mind this continuing faith, continuing faith. A Christian is is one who has not only put their faith in Jesus Christ singularly or one time, he or she continues to believe in him the rest of their life. Paul is saying you are faithful because you believed and because you are still believing. That's what he's saying. If if we are a saint, we are going to, we have not only initially believed, we will continue to believe. If we are in Christ, we will not believe once and then go about our business. We will continue to believe. Our entire life will be marked by faith. And of course, the journey is up and down. And sometimes we have weak faith and sometimes our faith is strong. It's all over the place, but it's there. It never goes away. And this is what he's saying to them. You're faithful in that you've believed and you continue to believe. The Ephesians continued to believe in Jesus, not just once. And the same must be true of us. If we are truly in Christ, then we will keep believing. Our faith will keep going and going and going and going, whether times are easy or tough. In fact, I think the tough times, I think the scripture makes it so clear that the tough times is where our faith can be made even stronger. I've never gotten anywhere in ease. I have to be constantly challenged by difficulty and these sorts of things. And sometimes the difficulty isn't coming from my circumstances, it's just the dumb things that I do. But in any case, difficulty is a forge where faith is strengthened and maturation occurs. But just know that if you're in Christ, you're going to be faithful. You've believed once and you'll continue to exercise faith. You will faithfully believe your whole life. And this is, again, not of you. This is the preserving grace of God. This is the Holy Spirit in you working this out and making this happen. And of course, you are responding to it, but... It's not just that you're doing it. The author and perfecter of our faith is behind this whole thing, and he's making sure that what he began in us will come to fruition. 
That's the second thing, that we are faithful. Part of our identity, right? We're saints, we're faithful, we keep believing. Three, we are one with him, one with Christ. One C, all of this is packed into the first verse, for crying out loud. One C, in Christ Jesus, he says. To the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful, in Christ Jesus. This phrase, in Christ, or in him, or the equivalent occurs nine times in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 23. Paul was big on stressing and emphasizing the fact that these Ephesian believers were in Christ Jesus, literally in him in a spiritual, mystical way. And this phrase or variation of it occurs a whopping 164 times in Paul's epistles. He made a big deal about Christians being in Christ or being one with him and being unified with him. These phrases or variations here mean more than merely believing in Christ or continuing to believe in Christ and being saved by his work. They mean being joined to Christ in one spiritual body so that what is true of him is also true of us. And the Bible uses numerous images to depict our union with Christ. You've got the Marriage of a man and a woman, Ephesians 5. You've got the life-giving vine to the branches in John 15, which we just looked at. You've got the union of the head and the other members of the body in one church, 1 Corinthians 12. The Bible uses all sorts of imagery to display and teach us how we are unified or one in Christ. Our being in Christ literally has to do with our union with him. Saints, the faithful saints, the ones who keep believing, are, are literally one with Christ. And, and this, to me, I, I try to figure out how this works. I can't quite get my mind around it. It's a truth that kind of transcends our ability to comprehend fully and understand. It's a difficult truth to understand how we have been placed in Christ and how we are one with him, but it is an absolute truth. And it really is the very essence of our salvation. So it's not just that you're a saint or that you're faithful. You're actually one with Christ. That we become like this with him and placed in him. And to me, that just tells me that I I don't belong to myself. I'm not to live for myself. That I'm so joined with Christ that my thoughts and my decisions, the way that I live my life has an impact on him. So I need to be mindful of what I'm doing. You know, just as some of you in this room this morning are married, you have a spouse, you have a husband or a wife, and and you can't live, I mean, some of you probably are attempting to live for yourselves. How's that working in your marriage? That doesn't work. But don't you have to be mindful of your spouse? You know, I used to work with a cast of goofball characters in the stereo business, and they were all married, you know, and doing their thing, and Man, my wife was ticked last night when I came home with a boat. I said, do you realize if I did that, I would be sailing right now because I wouldn't have a home? Oh, it wasn't a sailboat. It was a ski boat. I would be skiing right now if I didn't have... We, We don't live independently from the body of Christ, nor do we live independently from Christ. We are... In him, he is in us. At another point, the Apostle Paul stresses 
just how devastating adultery is because lying with someone who isn't your spouse, you're dragging Christ through that. Pretty serious. In fact, the one who was doing it was expelled from the church. He's in us. We're one with him. That should, that should motivate and help dictate how we live and how we function and operate because what I do has an impact on Christ. And what Christ does has an impact on me, right? But we are one with him. And to me, that is just in a, in a society and culture of fragmented relationships and high divorce rates and, and all of the interpersonal issues and things that we experience because we're fallen and everything that is so broken, how amazing is it to know that we have a relationship that is so intimate and so close and it is literally immutable? And I'm speaking of with Christ. You know, we watched a movie last night, Wreck-It Ralph 2, and Wreck-It, I called him Ralph, Ralph, Wreck-It Ralph 2. It was a pretty good flick, but Wreck-It Ralph, the character, you know, he's all broken over this little girl friend he has, you know, and, and she wants to go live her life and do her thing, and the thought of him not having that faithful friend in his life was just too much, and the movie kind of, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. If not, I won't tell you, but in any case, this guy was just, he had no other friends, and he had this one faithful friend, and then now this one faithful friend that he thought would never be unfaithful he was seeing as being unfaithful because she wanted to go do her thing, and it shattered him. And it just reminded me of how, no matter how great some of our relationships are down at this level, none of them are perfect, and no one is perfectly faithful, right? Spouses blow it. BFFs blow it. You know, just a couple of days ago, I jacked my wife up, just being selfish, you know? I mean, we, 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 we constantly take pot shots at each other. And we hurt the ones that we love the most, don't we? Who cares about the ones we don't love the most? Whatever. I was pretty insensitive, but you know what I mean, right? Like, you're not concerned about other people around you that you don't do life with. I mean, you are in some sense, but you're not overly concerned. But, I mean, we, we totally stab and jack up those who are closest to us. In, in, in some of our relationships, some, some of the people that we love have done just the worst possible things to us. And I, I have to admit, I've responded by, like, Wreck-It Ralph a few times and just blown up because people have, you know, not fulfilled their expect, my expectations of them or whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm consistently reminded in this broken world with broken relationships, and don't get me wrong, the fellowship with Christians can be wonderful, but it can be difficult too, but... Christ is the only faithful friend. He's the only truly faithful friend. Isn't he? He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't leave. He doesn't find someone else that he's more interested in and move on. He's immutable. And we have this union with him that I can't even describe to you. It's so far beyond my understanding. You're never alone. Never. We are one with him. That truth is so liberating. 
and so encouraging. Because you know what? In this life, you're going to have trouble and you're going to have relational difficulty in these things. You need to remember that he's perfectly faithful. Perfectly faithful. You know, sadly, some people get so hurt in relationships that they think that that's a reflection of God toward them. It's never. And when our relationships are broken and people mistreat us, it, it grieves the spirit, it grieves Christ, especially when it's brothers and sisters doing it. But what you feel, Christ feels. I'm comforted greatly by knowing that we are one with him in such a way that's just, it's not of this world. The scripture teaches how we have been seated with him in the heavenlies. Well, how can I be seated with him in the heavenlies when I'm standing right here? Somehow, in a spiritual way, I am with him where he is. I can't get my mind around that. We are one with him. For we are chosen or elected. Uh, This is probably one of my favorite of all biblical truths. The fact that that we have been chosen by him. We see it in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now there are three types of election in scripture, in the Bible. Theocratic election, which has to do with nationhood. You know, God, he, in a sense, elected Israel to be a holy people unto himself, Deuteronomy 7, 6. You have vocational election, which has to do with a position, task, or job. God elected the tribe of Levi to be his priests. God elected the disciples who were following Jesus to be disciples of his and apostles. And there is salvific election which has to do with salvation. Salvific election has nothing to do with nationhood. It has nothing to do with position, task, or job. It doesn't have anything to do with any of those things. Those other vocational and the other one deal with that. And salvific has nothing to do with that. And this is the kind of election, this is the kind of choosing that Paul is speaking of here in verse 4. He's talking about salvific election. From all eternity before the foundation of the world and therefore completely apart from any human merit, God chose you. What? God elected you by His sovereign grace. Those who are saved were placed in eternal union with Christ before the foundations of the world were ever laid. That's a mind-blowing truth. You know why? You know what the implication of that is? It means that God knew you. It means that God loved you with the deepest, most profound love. And it means that he chose you for salvation to be his child before you ever existed before anything ever existed.
I don't think that we entertain the idea of us being chosen enough, because if we did, I think that we would seek less approval from people, and we certainly wouldn't try to earn it with God. Why is this one of my favorite truths in Scripture? Because I think it's one of the most liberating truths. That's why. And it, it, it's just so tragically sad that so many Christians don't understand this truth and reject it because they think it's offensive because it means that some people are excluded from salvation. Well, yeah, there are people that are excluded from salvation, those who don't believe. God doesn't save everyone. That's a standard issue thing. But to me, it's one of the most liberating to know that, that I was fully known before I ever existed in the infinite mind of God and chosen not based on my behavior, which has been terrible since day one, and that he loved me despite any of that, and that he took me, he plucked me right out, doesn't even exist yet, in his view it does, plucks me out of the entire human race and sets me apart for him. And he does that with so many others. Revelation 7, 9 says we can't even count them. That's extraordinary. Is that not extraordinary? It's just, it's incredible. Yet this is precisely what he's done for me and for you. See, it doesn't matter who rejects you at this level. Because you've been chosen by God. And he is the one who matters most. Five, we are adopted. Verse five, Paul says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Man, if you are a believer, if you're in Christ, you are not only chosen in eternity past from the whole human race, but you were also predestined at that very same moment to become an adopted son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't just elect or choose us. He chooses us for something, something extraordinary, knowing, fully knowing and planning for it, a fallen, jacked-up human race to come. And he says, no, not for these ones. They're alienated from me, but not these ones. These ones I will adopt. I just picture him going into, a, you know, into an adoption center and all these babies are in there. And, and he chooses some of them to be his. And people say, well, why not all? Well, when you go into an adoption center, are you trying to adopt every baby in there? No, you pick the one you want. I don't know why God does what he does. Who am I to question him? I'm just glad I was picked. I'm just glad I was chosen. I'm just glad I was predestined to become his son. That's amazing to me. And this, this term here, adoption, it's a, it's a legal term in the original language. 
According to Roman law, adoption secured for the adopted child certain rights and privileges. He or she had a right to the name and property of the parent or parents who adopted them. And likewise, the parents were given certain rights over the adopted child. What Paul is saying here is that as adopted sons and daughters, we have been given special rank and privileges from our heavenly Father, from the one who adopted us. For example, our rank. Now, just listen. This is, <laughs> this is I'm, I'm carving out for you who you are in Christ. That's what I'm trying to do here. You may not even know that as an adopted son or daughter of Christ, and that's who you are, you may not even know that, that these things, these things are who you are as well, and these things are mind-blowing. In terms of our rank, we will be co-rulers in the kingdom of Christ. Revelation 3, 21. If, if you're in Christ, you're not just a saint, you're not just chosen these things. You're not just an adopted son or daughter. You're also going to be a co-ruler in the physical kingdom of Christ, which is coming. You will rule with him. What does that look like? I have no idea. But it sounds pretty cool. Also part of our rank, we will be co-judges in the kingdom of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. We will judge. I, I don't know what that looks like, but that sounds pretty cool. I've been pretty much getting judged my whole life. That doesn't feel too good. But at some point, we're going to be the judges. I don't even know why or why he set it up like that, but that sounds pretty amazing. Part of your rank, and this one really blows my mind, Part of our rank, we are higher than the angels. We will actually, in the kingdom of Christ, have a, a status that outranks angels. 1 Corinthians 6 3. See, this is part of your adoption. Because when God adopted you, he gave you a rank. And that rank is expressed in being a co ruler, a co a judge, and you have a higher status than angels, and angels are superior to us right now. They won't be. And that's not all. It's not just about our rank. We have certain privileges as adopted sons and daughters. We have membership in God's household. Ephesians 2.19. You're a member of God's household. God has a household. Remember when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house? We're part of God's household. This again reflects how we don't belong to this world. We're, we belong to another kingdom, a different household. We have membership in a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 If you're in Christ, you're a royal priest or a royal priestess. That's pretty amazing. We have God as our Abba, Father, Divine Dad, Divine Daddy, Romans 8, 15. I love the fact that God is my father and my Abba father like my dad because my, uh, my earthly dad failed me big time. Still continues to do that today. He's been a lousy dad. It's terrible. It hurts. But healing, 
started to come as I realized who the true father is to me. Some of you know very well what it's like to have a tore up family and have it displaced and have a deadbeat dad and all that. Well, you need to be comforted because you have God as your father. He's your Abba. He's your Abba. We have another privilege. We have access to God's throne, mercy, and grace. Hebrews 4.16. We can approach that throne with boldness anytime we like. To me, that just speaks of the access we have to our Father. We're not like a little kid at his father's pant leg. Dad, 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 trying to get his attention. Hold on, I'm busy, kid. I'm busy, son. I'll get to you in a minute. He's always available. Always there. We have eternal access. And boy, to have that kind of access to his throne of grace is just amazing. Because I don't know about you, but I need a lot of mercy and I need a lot of grace. Lots. Constantly going after him for his mercy. And he just, this new every morning. And a privilege of ours, you may not think it's a privilege, but let me tell you something right now. It is one of the great privileges of all, and that's the fact that we get to experience God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 6. God chastens those whom he loves. What does he do with those whom he does not love? He leaves them in their sin. And that leads to destruction. It is a wonderful thing to be so loved by our Heavenly Father that He disciplines us when we do wrong. His discipline preserves. His discipline corrects. His discipline sanctifies. Aren't you glad that your Heavenly Father loves you enough to discipline you when you're in the wrong? I am. He's not a aloof parent who's just letting things happen and letting their kids do things. Boy, did I see that at Disneyland. Don't you see that your kid's about to pull the plug on that ride <laughs> while they're upside down? I mean, I walked around that place giving them the universal, what the heck are you doing sign? Parents don't pay any attention to their kids. It's insanity. Parenting is, is almost a, a lost art today. And some parents over-parent, like, hey, 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 get over here. All he did was look over there. <laughs> what are you doing? I love the fact that, that our father is, is, is aware of what's going on with us. He constantly has his eye on us, the scripture says, constantly correcting, constantly doing these things. It's in such a loving manner. It's never offensive. If it is offensive, it's because of our flesh. We don't like it. But the way that he treats us is just with utter and absolute love and perfection. He's always watching, always mindful of what's going on with us. Another privilege, we are heirs of an inheritance, Ephesians 1.11. i talk about that a little bit more in a, in a few moments. We have an inheritance coming to us. Another, we have access to spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1.3. I love Ephesians chapter 1, verses, I think, 3 through 14 list all of our spiritual blessings. 
I just want to encourage you to go and read that text over and over and over, memorize it. Our spiritual blessings, I mean, they're represented throughout Scripture, but right there, there's a, a concentration of them, and it's, it is so encouraging and exhilarating to know how we have, what spiritual blessings we have in Christ. We have another privilege. We have access to divine mysteries, Ephesians 1, 8 through 10. That's one of the spiritual blessings listed there. That God has unfolded spiritual or divine mysteries to his adopted children that he doesn't reveal to anyone else, only to those whom he loves and has chosen. Our privileges are so, so great. Our rank is so, so great. Our adoption is so great. Why would we really, really care about our rank or privileges or anything on this side of glory? We spend way too much time being concerned with the here and now when we have something so much greater. And it's not just an inheritance. We possess so much of it now, but we fail to realize that. And yet some of it is an inheritance that's coming, that's being preserved for us now that we will attain one day. Six, we are blessed in the beloved. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What does it mean to be blessed in the beloved? Well, I tell you, when I studied this a few years ago, I did a lot of research on what it means. And it just simply puts, it's one of the most simplest things. It doesn't seem simple. But do you know what it means? Let me just boil it down for you in the simplest form. It means that we are accepted by God. It means that we are accepted by God. By grace, believers have been placed in the beloved who is Christ and have therefore become accepted by the Father just as Christ was accepted by Him. You do realize that as a human being, as as a full man, that Christ was accepted by the Father, not only Him as a person, but His ministry. And there were several moments, uh, Matthew 3.17, where God verbalized His acceptance of His Son This is my son with whom I am well pleased. There is an acceptance there that exists between Christ as a human being and the divine father. And since we have been placed in Christ, we are accepted just as Christ was accepted. Think about this for a moment. If our creator, who is the highest being of all, has accepted us, we can't possibly become more accepted our acceptance is maxed our acceptance is full why why do i stress this because it's a huge problem in our society today everyone is pursuing acceptance lgbt everywhere i need acceptance this is one of the products of the fall everyone wants to be accepted And to know that we have been blessed in the beloved, that we have been placed in Christ, that we have been fully accepted without any condition by God, let me tell you, that, that is a liberating truth. And it's one of the most liberating truths of the gospel. 
you begin to, to believe this of yourself, that you are fully, unconditionally accepted by God. In other words, he doesn't say, well, if you do a good job as a Christian, I'll keep accepting you. If his acceptance of us was based on our performance, I'd be accepted on Monday and not accepted on Tuesday, maybe on Wednesday. It's not based on my merit. It's based on the merit of Christ. I'm accepted not because I'm Phil. I'm accepted because I'm Phil in Christ. And nothing, nothing can undo the finished work of Christ. Therefore, nothing can undo my acceptance. Do you get it? You'll know when you're starting to get this truth because you will stop pursuing acceptance from others, which is what everyone is trying to do today. Well, I joined this club. I'm in this motorcycle gang. I do this. I do that. You know, whatever. Why do you think people are joining all this stuff? Just fun to hang out with people? No, they want acceptance. And these groups are, are more than welcome to open their arms to people and accept them as long as they abide by their rules. Well, I don't have to pursue any of that. I don't have to perform for God because Jesus performed for God. And I don't have to perform for man because I'm accepted by God. You get it? This is life-changing stuff, guys. This is the gospel. Being accepted means being blessed in the beloved, being placed in Christ, accepted. It means you do not have to pursue acceptance from God through good behavior and good deeds. You have all the acceptance you'll ever need, and nothing will ever change that. It also means that you do not have to pursue acceptance from others through people-pleasing, through asceticism and self-beautification, academia, you know, trying to get a lot of degrees so you're impressive, through wealth, possession, status, etc. We don't have to perform for God. Jesus did that. We don't have to perform for others because we're accepted by God. You can just be a saint, and that's good enough. You don't have to do anything else. Grab a hold of this truth. Grab a hold of this particular truth. If you are a believer, you are fully accepted by God, and nothing will ever, 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 ever change that. A, a, a moment of disobedience, a bad day doesn't change it. A good day doesn't increase it. It's done. It's permanent. It's fixed. In fact, it was planned in eternity past. You are predestined to walk in good works, not so that you could hold and keep the acceptance of God, but that that would be an expression of your acceptance from God. Believe it. So that's who we are in Christ Let's talk about what we have in Christ for a few moments. We can focus in on Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. This particular text presents four things. Firstly, we have redemption. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace. In Greek, redemption means deliverance. The word picture here has to do with a slave being delivered out of that slavery, being set free. The question arises, what have we been delivered from? We have been delivered from sin, Romans 6.18. Sin is what puts people in hell. We don't have to deal with that anymore. We have been delivered from it. Christ set us free from sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're now slaves to righteousness. We have also been delivered from the world. That's godless ideology, Galatians 1, 3 to 5. As I've said several times this morning, we don't belong to this world. This world is godless. We don't belong to it. We belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. We've been delivered from this, this way of thinking and these practices and the way the world processes and what it does. We, we don't belong to that club anymore. We've been set free and delivered from it. We have been delivered from demonic control. Colossians 2.15, every unbeliever is under Satan's control. They are sons of the devil, Jesus said in John. We, we're not under that control any longer. We're not under the control of sin. We're not under the control of Satan. We're not under the control of his demons. We were, we're not. We have been delivered from the penalty of God's law, right? Sin brings, is a breach of God's law, and it brings penalty. It brings death and destruction. We're not under that any longer. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. Talking about what's been done for you here. We have been delivered from the wrath to come. Romans 5, 8 through 10. The world has never ever, I know, that it's, I, I know that it's been judged before, I know that it's been flooded and these things have happened, but the world has never, never seen the fuller, a fuller or the fuller manifestation of God's wrath which will be displayed in the near future. It's never seen anything like what's coming. The flood was kindergarten. What's coming is so far beyond that I don't wish it upon anyone, not even Hitler, maybe. And we have been delivered from God's wrath. Christ delivered us from it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I don't have to be concerned about the wrath to come. I have God as my Abba. Not my destroyer. How did Christ deliver us from, from all of these things, these terrible things? He did it through his blood. That's what the text says. His blood secured our forgiveness and deliverance in accordance with the riches of his grace. Secondly, we have the mystery of God's will, verses 8 through 10. It says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The mystery of, of God's will here has to do with God's plan for the end, the end times. We call it eschatology. That's how we study that subject. A lot of people get this subject really, really wrong. And I'm not talking about 
you know, premillennialism or amillennialism or any of that. I'm, I'm just talking about the fact that they deny the idea that we're in the end times. Now, we are. We are in the end times right now. They started when Christ came. The end is, 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 is now and it's coming. We're, we're living in the end times. And God has graciously provided the knowledge of these things in His Word and has made them understandable to a degree. I think there's a bit, bit of mystery when it comes to this subject on the nuts and bolts and the minutia of how Christ comes back and exactly what He does and how that's all laid out. We, we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out and pin it down, but there's some mystery there. But for the most part, He's made these things known to us. Ultimately, we know that Jesus is coming back to set things straight, to set things right, and we must be ready for His return. I mean, that right there is part of God's mystery, the mystery of God's will, the fact that He is sending Jesus back, that Christ will raise a sword to the nations and destroy them and establish His reign physically, because He is reigning now spiritually and physically in a sense. But it's this part of God's mystery that we have been given knowledge of. That's a, that's a huge blessing to know that Christ is coming back and that we need to be ready for Him, that we know that He's going to rectify all of this. He's not going to reestablish Eden. What we have coming is superior to Eden in every way. As Milton put it, paradise lost. Yeah, well, the paradise that we have acquired through Christ supersedes that that existed prior to the fall. It's much greater, infinitely greater. So we have the mystery of God's will, and I think that has to do with the end times. We have a sense of what's going on there. We should live in light of that. Three, we have an inheritance. This is what I wanted to talk about earlier. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is our inheritance? We shall inherit eternal life. Matthew 19, 29. We've already inherited it, and in a sense, it's ours, but we're not experiencing the absolute best part of it yet, in my opinion, which will come soon. We shall inherit the earth, right? Matthew 5, 5. The meek shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Believers. This earth will be remade and it will belong to all of us if we are in Christ. We shall inherit the kingdom of God, Matthew 25, 31 through 34. The kingdom of God is, God is ours. As I said earlier, we don't belong to this world. It's part of our inheritance. We own it now, but we will experience it in a fuller manifestation later. Another thing, we shall inherit a treasure that will never perish, spoil, or fade. 1 Peter 1.4. What is this treasure? What is it that Peter was speaking about there? I think it's God himself. That's what I think. I think we've been misled to believe that, oh, my inheritance is golden streets and big supper tables and football, like that dumb song says. 
you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that, to me, that's great. Heaven's awesome. It's beautiful. It's terrible without Christ. It's nothing. It's hell without him. I'm not interested in getting a mansion. I'm not interested in getting a better place. I'm not interested in having a, a house that's more spacious, has more room, or maybe the vehicle that I wanted or whatever this heavenly gift is. I want God. I want him. I don't want him. I want him now by faith, but not forever. I want his physical presence. Don't you? That is an inheritance that will never spoil, fade. God himself. That's the inheritance we get. I like what MacArthur wrote. He said, in Christ, believers inherit every promise God ever made. Wow. Except for the one that he made to destroy the world. Thank God I had to correct MacArthur on that because that's a bad promise. That's, that's a promise. It's all going up in flames, guys. It's all going up in flames. That's why MacArthur said, drive an SUV, eat steak, cut down trees and use them as firewood. It's all going up in flames. He doesn't like environmentalism, apparently. <laughs> Number four, we have the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Verses 13 to 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. <laughs> Love that text. When a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by grace through faith, he or she is literally in that moment. And I think just prior to that moment as they're regenerated, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit means to be indwelt. It means to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's not a mystical act. It is the Spirit's supernatural presence in us. What does His presence in us do for us his presence proves that we belong to God. Romans 8, 16. This is one of the greatest markers of true salvation. It is the greatest marker of true salvation that a person has the Holy Spirit. We're always asking people if they believe, if they believe, if they believe. Have you repented? Oh, yeah, I've done all that. How often do we ask people if they have the Holy Spirit? Guess what? If you have the Holy Spirit, you know you have the Holy Spirit. You know He lives in you. You know He indwells you. You know that you are possessed by Him. Secondly, His presence preserves us for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. Thirdly, His presence is the pledge of our future inheritance, Ephesians 1.14, 2 Corinthians 1.22-23. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit proves that we belong to God. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit, He in us preserves us for the day of redemption. This is the incorruptible nature of our salvation. It cannot be lost. It cannot be forfeited. If we were left to ourselves, it would be. But we have the Spirit in us, and the Spirit is greater. And His presence in us, it is that pledge, that guarantee that we, that you, if you are in Christ, have a future inheritance. And like I said, I think that inheritance is God Himself. I'd rather have God than Golden Streets. Section three, we'll move through this one really quickly. This is how we should live for Christ. Now you can flip over to Ephesians 4. 
17 through 32 is where I'll be summarizing. This is our response to who we are and to what we have. This is how we should respond. This is what we should do. Eight things in this text we see. Firstly, we are to walk as children of God. Just simple. But you've been adopted. You're a child. Christ secured that adoption through his work. It's manifested in you. It's promised. It's guaranteed through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? Now here's our response to it. We ought to walk as children. We've been adopted by him. We ought to live as his children, shouldn't we? Very simple. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their, the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And we're not like Gentiles, which I think is a reference to unbelievers here. We're no longer like that. We were, but we're not any longer. We're children of God now. We don't have darkened, we don't have futile minds anymore. We have illuminated minds. We have minds that are being transformed by the Word of God. We're not darkened in our understanding. We've been illuminated. We know the truth. We know the gospel. We've been given the mysteries of God's will. We know the end. We know we win. We know that we're accepted, that our acceptance is maxed, that it's full. We know that we are loved. We know that we are chosen. The knowledge of these things should propel us and fuel us to walk as children of God. You understand? I've been teaching you from the very first chapter of Ephesians. Now I'm teaching you from one of the last chapters. You see how the book's structured? Here's the work of Christ. Here's what you have. Now here's what you do. Man, if we've been adopted by God, we ought to be like Him. Second, we are to pursue purity. These are just the workings out of walking as children of God. Verse 19, he's still speaking of, of Gentile unbelievers. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice and every kind of impurity. This is, this is, this is we ought to be the antithesis, uh, antithesis to this. I almost couldn't get that out. I was like, My tongue wouldn't cooperate. <laughs> We are to pursue purity. We are to be pure. We are to walk in purity, in the strength, power of the Holy Spirit. We do this in our speech. We do this in our actions. I struggle with this from time to time. It's tough to be, to be mindful of this all the time, to be mindful of what you're thinking, to be mindful of what you're saying. You know, James said the tongue is a little two-ounce monster. Boy, is it hard to tame sometimes, isn't it? Whew. Sometimes I just want to cut it out, but then it'd be kind of hard to eat. And I like eating. We are to pursue purity. In fact, I think it's, it's, in, it's in our spiritual DNA to want that, to want to please Christ, to want to pursue that which glorifies Him. And only that which is pure and righteous glorifies Him. We're not to go after the things that we went after before we were saved. We don't, we don't go to those places of entertainment anymore. We don't, we don't speak the way that we do. We don't agree with those jokes anymore and the things that people, you know, that we were involved in prior to that. We, we are 
kind of relentlessly pursuing purity. We want to live a pure life for God. Three, we are to be honest. Verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we all members of one another. Honesty. Someone once said honesty is the best policy. Well, yeah, it just keeps you out of trouble. But God demands honesty. In fact, when we lie and get caught up in lies, even the little ones, when we embellish on our stories, guilty. Every fish I've ever caught is much larger in my mind than it actually was, right? We do. How, you realize that embellishing is lying. Have you ever lied? Some people say, well, I don't overtly lie. Think about it. Embellishments, not telling things accurately. If you have to retell something and you don't stop and recount how things actually went so you can give that experience verbatim, you just kind of make things up and shoot from the hip, you're probably lying at some point. I mean, we lie in so many ways, it's not even funny. And guess what? The devil is the father of lies. When we give ourselves over to dishonesty, whether it be for selfish gain or to preserve ourselves because we're mixed up in something, we're acting like not our heavenly father. We are to pursue honesty. We are to put away with falsehood. We are to be mindful of what we're thinking, mindful of what we're saying. I need to work on this. Four, we are to avoid unholy anger, verses 26 and 27. Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The idea here is righteous indignation. It's okay to, to, to get angry over the things that anger God but it's never wise to entertain even righteous indignation throughout the night. Submit that anger and that difficulty to God. But God has wired us in such a way to get upset over the things that upset Him. And He has called us to be bold and to speak out against those things, whether it be abortion or anything else. But we need to do it in love and truth. You need to be mindful of how you do it. I've gotten so angry over that abortion issue at times. I've like thought in my mind, I can see why people that are opposed to it can get angry enough to get violent over it, which is counterproductive. But the idea of murdering babies to me that have no choice, no opportunity, no, just, uh, but I, I can't, that can become bitterness if I'm not careful. And I need to submit that to the Lord and address that issue when I have opportunity. But I need to do it in love. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not blowing up a clinic. That leads to nothing but more murder. Even though, if you're passionate about that issue, you know that you felt like, oh, you felt like killing those who kill babies a few times, I'm sure. I know I have. It's disgusting. But pick any issue. The things that upset God ought to upset his people. We're his adopted sons and daughters. But be careful with that. Don't let it become bitterness and don't let the sun go down on it. We are to work hard and be generous. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You know, the days of sandbagging and all that before Christ are over. If you're in Christ, you should work hard. If you're a housewife, a homemaker, work hard at that. 
you go to a job, you're a pile driver like my bro back there, work hard at that. You work for a tech company, you work hard at that for the Lord. You work hard. You earn your pay. You drive the truck, you work at the car lot, both of you. You know what I'm saying. You help kids. I don't know what you do. No, I'm kidding. You adjust insurance. I don't know. Whatever you do, though, you work hard, right? We work hard. We're not looking for a free ride here. We're not look, we, don't, we don't look at socialism as an answer. We don't want a free ticket. The people of God ought to be the hardest working people in our society. We ought to work hard. And we ought to be generous, right? Not just work hard to hoard and, and, and amass a fortune for ourselves or for our great 401k. Fine with that, but, but be generous with it. We labor not just for our own benefit, but for also the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe that homeless guy down there on the corner. I get the idea that in Ephesians, in the church at Ephesus, there were probably some thieves and stuff like that, right, that got saved. And it's like, look, you guys, you guys can't be doing that anymore. You, know, you need to take the Snickers back to Target. Don't do that, man. Don't steal. You work hard with your hands. You don't use your hands for illicit purposes. You use your hands for the glory of God. And if that means swinging a hammer, do that. We are to avoid unholy speech. 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Man, this is, this is the big one. This is, this is a facet of purity. Man, watch what you say. Profanity, coarse joking, these things. They just, man, I saw a guy the other day. I, 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 he was on Instagram. Yeah, I'm still on social media a little bit. I'm sorry. But, anyways, I was in there and, and, I, and this guy asked to be my friend. And, and he's, he's a guy I've known since high school and, and all this. And, 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 and I, you know, I love the guy. And he, know, he knows Christ now, supposedly, and all that. I mean, the guy's done some time in prison and everything. He's done four trips, dude. He was an alcoholic. And, he was praising God in one post and the next. It was just like six F-bombs, and it's just like, dude, what are you doing, man? I'm confused. And then I thought, the last time that I hit my thumb with a hammer, what did I say? Eh, it wasn't that, but it was close. I used the Christian version. I'm really no better in some ways at times, but for the most part, you know, how confusing it must be for those around us as we profess Christ and then use expletives or some variation of it. Man, man, man we're, we're freshwater streams. You can't, you can't have salt water flowing from you. You pour out one or the other, not both. It's conflicting, it's, it, it's confusing, but it doesn't glorify God. Unholy speech. You got to stay away from it. I got to work on this. We ought to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. Because this is the next one in line in verse 30, but I think that's one of the things that grieves the Holy Spirit is the unholy speech. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But if we pursue purity, we watch what we say. We work hard. We're generous. We do the things that God has told us to do in this text. Because of who we are in Christ and what we have, that's the thing that propels our love and motivates our action. We're not going to be grieving the Holy Spirit here, guys. The Holy Spirit's going to be filled with joy. We are to treat others how we want to be treated, verses 
31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamor is yelling and slander, be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I just summarize that as treat others how you want to be treated. None of us like to have wrath put on us. None of us like it when people are angry with us. I don't like being yelled at, do you? I don't like being slandered, which has to do with people are talking trash about me. And slander has to do with untruth, making things up about me. I don't like being treated that way. So I should treat others how I would want to be treated. It's godly to do that. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Summarize it that way. Treat others how you want to be treated. That does not grieve the Holy Spirit. That glorifies God. Closing. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 have to do with Christ's work on our behalf, what we have in Him. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 have to do with our work as His people. Our work follows His work. I said it earlier, don't flip them. Don't ever put our work ahead of Jesus' work. Don't flip them. The Bible says we love God because He first loved us. God is the initiator. God is the workman. We are simply His workmanship, right? Ephesians 2.10. If we flip this order and we're all working to get you know, something in Christ and working to get His love and working to get whatever, His acceptance and His favor and all that, this is false religion, man. It's all it is. This is what every religion in the world is doing. Don't flip them. Remember the order. Who we are in Christ, what's been accomplished for us, now we work. Don't think, I'm going to work so that I can become something in Christ and so that I can get something from Him. Don't mix it up. We're not to be about false religion. False religion says, earn your way with God, and God helps those who help themselves. Christianity says it is impossible to earn your way with God, and God helps those who cannot help themselves. Remember that. Salvation is not based on how we perform. Our performance has nothing to do with it. If this were true, I say it all the time, my performance is so up and down, I'd have salvation one day, I'd lose it the next. I'd be back and forth with it. It's not based on my performance. It's based on the performance of Christ it's based on God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. And our blessings, our blessings, what we have in Christ, is based on God's providence, not on our performance. These things are fixed in Him. They were fixed in eternity. Nothing will ever change them. Do not leave this worship service thinking that you have to perform for God. You do not you're not supposed to walk out here and go, okay, now i got to get his favor. Now i got to do this, now i got to do that. You haven't heard a word I said. Don't come out of here thinking like that. Remember this. Jesus performed for you, and God fully accepted his performance. That's the basis of who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. And that is the fuel that will drive up our love, and that love is the fuel that propels our work and our obedience. Don't forget that. May it be the knowledge of what Christ has done for us. 
May it be the knowledge of what we have in him that fans into flame a deeper, growing, deeper, increasing, burning love for him. And may that, may that, may that love be the fuel that propels our work, our obedience. Amen? Thank you. Thanks for listening.